0: Welcome to the Onyx Bathcast. We have members around the globe. My name is Matthew Dawkins and I am joined by my co-host Dixie Cochran. Hi there. And Eddie Flat Earther Webb. (laughs) Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. 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 (laughs) Well, you told me before we started recording you were on the fence. Uh, You would have been on a yoga ball, but uh, round objects offend your sensibilities. None of that is true. (laughs) I don't even own a yoga ball. I don't own a yoga ball.
1: Right, because you hate globular things. Yeah.
2: Globular things. (laughs) It's just a fun word, to be fair, globular. Globular. Hmm.
0: Globular. I think more flat earthers would come around to our way of thinking, come around to our way of thinking, if uh, if we use the word globular at them more.
1: Although I guess that you can still use the term round if you're a flat earther, because I think that if you're a flat earther, you believe the earth is like a disc, like a pizza, which is technically round. Yeah, it's
0: well, just not, not all of them. Round circle.
1: No, Oh, no. do some of them think that it's squared off?
0: Yes. Uh, one that I knew, uh, who had a YouTube channel uh, de- dedicated to role-playing games, uh, who I won't name, uh, because why well, give them the publicity, uh, believed <laughs> that it was squared off. It was the uh, Gentleman that
1: Gamer! Yeah, were... no, sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, that fraud, that charlatan. <laughs> uh, but I my, what, what I a, was. a Gentleman. And yeah, he believed it. There were corners. There was a, um, so there was a flat Earth society, uh, like a convention in the UK in 2018. The three of us just now were looking at one of their videos, and this uh, role-playing chap is on there. And uh, if you actually look up the convention itself, you can you can look at the various keynote speakers. Uh, I guess the the what, what their speeches, their presentations, and almost every single one talks about the Earth in a different form. So even the flat Earthers do not agree on what shape the flat Earth takes, other than the fact it isn't a globe. That's the one thing they agree on. We're all wrong, but they are they they are joined in their rightness. I Even just imagine
2: there's right, like one guy right. in the back of the room who's very angry that his rhomboid theory isn't being
0: addressed.
1: <laughs> rhombus. Talk about the rhombus. <laughs>
0: he, that's yeah, that's what he heckles from the back of the auditorium. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. be honest. It would yeah, it would sound like that. The auditorium is going to have about 12 people in and he is cupping his <laughs> hands over his mouth to make it sound like he's being drowned out by <laughs> the rhombus! hubbub.
1: Also, he 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 is always first in line at at the, the Q and A afterwards. And yeah. as soon as he gets up to the front, whoever's talking, it's just like, <sighs> "We're not talking about the rhombus, Gary." Why we're not? not. <laughs> Sorry, to any Garys out there, just the name yeah. that I. Thought.
0: Just because you can't see the rhombus for what it is, I'm the only one. The blinkers are off. You know, we we're, we're not we don't tend to bully or punch down on the Onyx Path cast. I'd just like to add this disclaimer. And I am sure that there are many lovely flat earthers out there. And as much (laughs) as as much as I am sounding utterly insincere right now, you can trust me. I I I would hate for any flat earthers to get offended by our mockery.
1: Would you really? Would you hate that?
0: Well, I guess we will find out if any of you.
1: I'll tell you what. I'll
0: put it out there. If
2: any flat Earthers can show me a picture of the corners of the Earth, I will take back some of what I've said.
1: No, they have like distortion fields and stuff. They always yeah. There's like mountain ranges you can't get past Mm -hmm. or something because planes don't work. I don't know. So story time. I was uh I used to hang out with a bunch of really cool people in Connecticut when I lived there. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Most people around my age, very like smart, smart folks. Uh, big nerds, whatever. And one night we were all hanging out on my friend's porch because that's where we hung out almost every night that it was nice and we had gotten some pizza we had a couple drinks whatever and then we discovered that someone that we had known for years years and years was a flat earther and had just never admitted it to us Mm -hmm. and then my friend eric who has a phd in physics sat there half drunk for like an hour trying to draw diagrams to show like how horizon lines worked and stuff. Mm -hmm. And every time the flat earther person who I will not name on here would just kind of be like, like have, have a talking point ready to be like, well, that's because of this. And it's just like, Oh my God. Like two of my other friends, like sat him down in the living room for half an hour to be like, are you fucking with us? (laughs) And he's like, no, like this is real. (laughs) Everybody was like, Oh my God, man. What the hell? But it was a very, very funny night, And also every time people started to drop it, I would bring it back up because I like stirring the pot. Um, <laughs> and because I wanted him to keep having to justify himself. <laughs> uh, so every time it would like start to die down and not be a topic of conversation, I'd be like, "So, <laughs> what do you think about um, you know, time zones?" <laughs> and he would just go off for a minute. It was really funny.
0: It's it's actually an interesting line to walk. I mean, we've we've not not the flat earth thing. That's nonsense. <laughs> well, uh, it does make me wonder what shape did Jesus Christ think the world was. But before we get onto that heavy topic, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, he probably never even considered it. To be honest, uh, he had much weightier things to deal with. Uh, I yeah I. I so it's it's an interesting flavor of ignorance, and you know, uh, for those of you listening expecting a GM workshop, we will somehow segue this in. Don't you worry?
2: <laughs> we have tried so many times. Yeah.
0: So the Discworld RPG. There you go. Um,
2: <laughs> Which is actually pretty good.
0: Yeah, it's very, very good. Probably one of the my favorite GURPS product of all time. Mm-hmm. Like I said, in the nineties before conspiracy theory became,
2: like, a huge problem and, like, mm-hmm. a, a driving force.
1: Well, yeah, because back in the 90s, it was like, X-Files, foil hats, but right, exactly, mm-hmm. and it, was, it was
2: popular. Um, it was, uh, like, funny
1: popular, too. Yeah. Uh, Alien, Fifty like, One, all that kind uh, of stuff.
2: Because, like, I remember when the Challenger exploded, just how old I am, there was a lot of initial conspiracy theory around it because people just couldn't believe that it was just a horrible accident. Uh, and so I think if some of it is trying to find a answer that makes sense. Hmm. Uh, and I mean, to, 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 slides into our topic a little bit. Um, I think it's when you're playing a tabletop role playing game, I think it's a similar concern is that, especially if you're running a game like a mystery game, uh, if things make sense to you as the game master and they're not making sense to your players, that that's a problem. And yeah. you can't just keep shoving the same facts at them to get them to try to to come around to your way of thinking. You have to consider rearranging the, 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 the topics or, or going a new direction in something that the players do glom onto and can put together and go, oh, okay, I see how that fits. Because certainly I have run mystery games where the mystery seemed dead obvious to me and the players are just like, I have no idea what happened. How did we get to here? And it's like, well, all these clues are just right there and, and they're just not getting it. So it's like, I have... Sometimes I'm rearranging on the fly to try to get it to make more sense to them. And sometimes I'm just listening to them seeing what they come up with and just saying yes, that's the right answer. Cool, let's go. Yeah.
1: <laughs> also yeah. realizing that like so like we'll get into the actual topic in a minute here, but I have a I have a small anecdote to also kick us off with that. And that's that like also you need to realize that your players only have the information you've given them. Mm-hmm. Um and they can't mind read. Uh, because I had a super frustrating game uh, a few years back now. Uh, playing D&D 5e -hmm. and we were like there was a thing we had to recover and it was the most important thing in the world right we had to recover it and take it somewhere else right and that was our mission Mm -hmm. was the most important thing and so I had the thing like strapped to me it's like a sword or something right Mm -hmm. it's like strapped to my back and we were in this like weird space like kind of a a, an alternate dimension kind of area and some monster had to take it from me and like I was willing to leave my friends behind to protect this thing Because this was the most important thing in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And the DM was like, no, I'm taking this thing from you now. And I was like, then why the hell am I going to keep playing this campaign? Like, that was my entire (laughs) reason for going on this quest. Yeah. And I don't know, like, it was was one of those where, like, we didn't really know each other beforehand as far as the, like, player characters go. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I don't care about these people. And I don't, like... I cared about the mission that was going to pay me money. Yeah. Um. And now you've taken that away from me. I don't know how to get it back. I don't know who that person is who took it. I don't know what the hell your end game here is, but you've just completely disincentivized me from playing this game because that was the only incentive I had. <laughs> and so like, that's a problem. Like maybe he had a really cool plot worked out where we like recovered it and did this thing and whatever. But I didn't know that. Right. All I knew was that I had been told, you know, the only thing that matters is the color red, and then the color red disappeared from my vision, and I was like, "I give up, I guess." And and I yeah. think
2: there you can. I have found this good experience, and occasionally when the players like, "I need you to just roll with this," it, it will pay yeah. off. But you have to, as a game master, establish trust, and then also you need to pay that off. You have you have to pay it off in a way that is good for the players. So it's like you have to trust me this is going somewhere and you will enjoy it, or at least this is going somewhere and it won't screw you.
1: Right. Yeah. Like I wasn't getting that. And also I was getting, I was getting no reassurance. And it was also quite obvious from like my demeanor that I was getting actually frustrated, like me Dixie as a person.
2: No, totally. Absolutely. And
1: since this is a friend of mine, that's the point where he should be like, Hey, take five. You know, Exactly. Yeah. let's let's go talk about this real quick. Let's talk about this for a second. Here's Mm -hmm. what I want to do. Oh, okay, cool. Sorry. I, I didn't understand what you were doing. Um, but like that, that that wasn't happening, so it was just a really frustrating situation for me as a player. Because yeah. you know, like, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to play this character, and all of a sudden, you've taken away the one thing I had, and that's that's weird.
0: No, I've uh, I have been in that situation many a time as a player, mm-hmm. and sometimes as a GM. You know, sometimes I will take an action or I will plot something out where that that, that the players, frankly, don't want and I only come to the realisation they don't want that after I've done it, you know? And Mm -hmm. uh, clearly, uh, you know, this is a GM workshop, uh, ostensibly, and I think the biggest piece of advice we'll be saying throughout this is communication. Good communication between the GM Mm -hmm. and the players is vital. Uh, But a lot of the time, one of the biggest cheats a GM can make to get around that is, especially in something like a mystery game, is when you get to the end of the session, uh, and this is something I only recently learned, uh, is to ask players what they liked about the session. Either Mm -hmm, ask them mm -hmm. at the end or ask them at the beginning of the next session. Or between session, if you have regular communication with them. uh, Because that then informs you as to how to direct the gameplay. Mm -hmm. And if it's a mystery, actually asking the players a bit slyly, perhaps, what do you think the answer is? You know, Where do mm-hmm. you think the missing person is or the MacGuffin or what the clue is? And you almost get a bit of a poll there of potential answers. And if none of them match yours, if none of them match the answer you've got in mind, then it's time to start well, rewriting some of your plots to make one of their solutions make sense or yeah, at least or... tie their solution into what your solution is.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because like a like, twist ending can be fun. Like, oh, it's actually this person all along. But you need to, like with with, with, with all mysteries um, and all like whodunit kind of things, what, what makes it interesting is putting the pieces together at the end. So it can't be a twist that doesn't make any sense. It needs to be a twist that you've like seeded throughout the game. Right. Because um, it is that way with, like, if you're me, um, and I'm, a lot of people are like this, I know, and you watch either a mystery thing or even a like slasher film or something where you don't know who the killer is and you're sitting there going, like, trying to figure it out. And if you figure it out before the reveal, you feel so fucking smart. Yeah. And that's a great feeling. Like, I love it when I see a movie and I've like, like, even if I don't figure it out till like 10 minutes before the end. It's still really cool <laughs> to feel like you're a little smarter than the movie, you know? Yeah. And yeah. that's, that's how it is with game. So like, if you can tie in like, Oh, you know, player X thinks that Mary is actually the killer. Uh, I was going to be John, but maybe Mary is now John's accomplice. Like, cool. Look at you. You're smart. You know? Yeah. Right. And I think that
2: goes to kind of just, Plot design as well. it doesn't necessarily have to be mysteries, um, but mysteries mm-hmm. are a good basis for discussing just how to structure a plot. Um, by way of example, uh, uh, Dixie suggested a, a game to be recently called The Shapeshifting Detective, um, yeah. which is a lot of fun. It's, it's a full motion video, video game. You could play a game in like two, three hours. It's pretty short. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting about it is that each time you play, the actual killer is randomized.
1: Oh, that's cool. I didn't actually know that.
2: Yeah, I found out much, much later because I was annoyed by my ending, which is what where I'm going to. Um, the the game did a really good job of giving you like lots of options, and then slowly, like a good mystery. Okay, this person had an alibi. This person is, is very concerned. You know, there's there's evidence that's pointing towards a different direction, and and it changed directions a, a good few times during it. It's like a good mystery, uh, but the end, they got the wrong person. And what was nice is that the game didn't actually give me the bad ending as a result of that because everything else I had gotten, I just got the wrong suspect. I got the right evidence. Yeah. I got, mm-hmm. uh, I, I kept all of the victims safe. Um, so I get every other piece correct. And in a traditional mystery game, it would have been like, nope, you got the wrong, you didn't get the killer, so you failed. Thing I've played a lot of them. I know how that works. But mm-hmm. th- the game actually, you know, gave me some thank you. Wrap up scenes, you know, gave me the, you know, we're going we're to hire you on this detective now. Um, I, I explicitly got a good ending. And that's something that really stuck with me for tabletop games is that sometimes in your head, you have a plot going a certain direction. And there's one beat that is critical, but just doesn't quite land right. And hmm. if the players get everything else. There, there's a lot of values. Like, okay, just a gimme. It's like, you know, you can have a partial success at a macro level as well as individual roles. Yeah, we talk a lot about like you know, success with the cost, like for like uh, a. You know, uh, Trinity games, for example, or, or Storypath games. You know, you get lots of the, you know, you succeeded, but not quite well enough, or whatever. You can do that at a macro level, too, where it's like, okay, you didn't quite get every piece of the plot. Maybe the main character gets away. Well, then, cool, bring him back next session. But everything else a player should get rewarded for mm-hmm. or feel like they got something really cool accomplishments there. So success does not have to be binary from a plot perspective. And again, same goes mystery. You may not have figured out the main mystery, but if they everything else, you know, if they, if they kept people safe, if they got the MacGuffin, you know, then take those loose ends and do something else with them. Don't see it as a failure. See it as a way of perpetuating the storyline.
0: I have to to say I really love the idea of a uh, police review board. I, I dread the idea in real life, but I love the idea in fiction of a police review board bringing in trainee detective Eddie Webb and saying well Webb, you managed to secure every piece of evidence you protected the surviving victims so what if the wrong guy hanged you got a 95 percent result
2: to be fair also i'm literally a shape-shifting detective so i think it's fair to say this is not a traditional police force <laughs> yeah the- so
1: like we we also the the three of us and our and Danielle, who've on the podcast many times, uh, play Consulting Detective together uh, mm. every yes. few weeks through through Discord. Yes. Um, it's It's been a thing we've been doing during the pandemic. It's been really cool because, you know, a lot of the PDFs are shareable, so we can see, like, the maps and everything, while the people who actually own the game can read off what's happening in the different rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that game works is there's almost always a main mystery and a side mystery. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you miss the side mystery completely oh, yeah. depending on how you go about it. So you get to the end and they ask you these like two sets of questions. The first set of questions is like related to the main mystery, like who killed professor Plum, you know? Yeah. Okay. It was this person. Duh, duh. But then we'll get this to question too. And it'll be like, who is Mark Handelsberger? And I'm like, I've never heard that name in my <laughs> entire life. Thanks. Um, let's not go back because that's not the actual mystery we're trying to solve like they are bonus points so it's like if you were a detective and you were solving a mystery and then like stumbled on another one and also solved it like that's great but solving your main mystery is why you're there
0: yeah it's um, one of one of the yeah. big things that divides the good cases in consulting detective from the bad ones And it's something I've learned from, in a a lot of ways, playing a lot of that Sherlock Holmes game with you uh, folks and outside of this group, uh, is is how to structure a bad mystery and not to do that. I mean, there's it's interesting. I, I mean, maybe we'll change the title to just talk about mystery games. I don't know. Uh, I think a lot of role-playing games do depend on mysteries, twists, and you know, unexpected outcomes regardless, because a straightforward, mm-hmm. linear, mission-based game tends to be quite dull. I think it, it can work sometimes for a one-shot, but certainly not for a campaign. And uh, I've we've cited Consulting Detective a lot. We I've cited Horror on the Orient Express a lot. But one of the key components of Horror on the Orient Express, and this isn't really a spoiler for a game of this game's age, mm. is that as you go across Europe on the eponymous train, uh, you're tasked with collecting the pieces of a statue, essentially and forming that statue. Now, you've been tasked to do this by a man in the shadows who you believe to be a former friend and mentor of you who's been horribly burnt, of course, and so you never see them. And you, and if you're a smart keeper or GM, you will have ran a couple of sessions beforehand so that the player's characters can actually attach themselves to this NPC and care what he's asking them to do care about her. And now the thing is, as you're picking up these pieces of this statue, the Sedefkar Simulacrum, you, let's say, pick up its arm within 1d3 days, the character who bears the arm, the bearer of the arm, will start suffering horrendous pain and arthritis in their arm. <laughs> Uh, that matches Mm -hmm. the statue's arm and likewise when you pick up the leg and so on you will feel you'll, you'll be more inclined to bad luck so for instance if you pick up the leg you will then trip off the train at some point and sprain your ankle or break your leg or something like that now, all of that to say, you're supposed to reach Constantinople by the end of the by the end of the campaign with this entire mm-hmm. statue intact and your investigators intact, and still want to bring this statue to a place called the Shunned Mosque to complete a ritual that you have been told will prevent Nial Athertep from entering the world or empowering himself or what have you. But I've ran this campaign many, many times. And it only takes a couple of pieces of this statue, if not zero of them, because they don't trust the man in the shadows telling them to collect them, to say, you know what I think? Once we assemble this statue, this is going to summon Athertep isn't it? This isn't this isn't <laughs> a, sure, uh, no. a ritual of banishing. And they're right. Of course they're right. It's the most obvious thing in the world. They're picking up the cursed pieces of a statue that's going to form into some demigod <laughs> when they put it together. Or Voltron, one the two. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's uh, one of the one of the big issues and mysteries where the answer is so signposted that you would you would have to be looking the other way, or really be wanting to play an ignorant character who didn't accept that, even if the players did.
2: Right. Uh, yeah. So um, I'm going to make a, a proposal here. It's, it's a radical proposal, and I, I, I'm happy both you to push back on me, but. I'm going to make the argument that every RPG adventure, if the piece is not active dice action piece like a combat or action set, it is ultimately a mystery.
1: So that actually ties into something that I was going to say. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. go ahead then. Which is that when I was in college, I took a lot of writing courses, and one of the things that my professor taught me is that, like, aside from some kind of out there works, you know, Mm. pretty much every single narrative is just a series of questions and answers. So you start a book and you're like, who is this main character? Okay, now I know. Where do they live? Okay, now I know. What is, what are their goals? Okay, now I know. And then like, that's how you write is you set up a question or a mystery as Mm -hmm. it were, and -hmm. then you answer it. And sometimes there is one overarching mystery, like who is the bad guy or, you know, who is killing these people or whatever. Um, But every single narrative thing you're doing is questions and answers. Like, who is this NPC? What is their name? What do they want? How can I help them? Is that actually their motive? And like, if you think about it like that, it becomes really, really, really easy to set up a story because you essentially usually start with a small question. You know, who is talking? Right. Um, and then you answer it and then you keep going from there. Um, and like, even if it, it feels like they're presenting you with just facts like this is Bob, this is Bob's girlfriend, Bob is 35 years old, you know, whatever. Really, what you're doing is going, who is this? Oh, it's Bob. What is Bob's relationship status? Oh, he has a girlfriend. How old is Bob? He's 35, you know, mm-hmm. and that's really, really I think it's a really useful way of thinking of stuff like that.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah. even, even classic uh, uh, fantasy adventures, use like something like Legend of Zelda, right? You know, Again, it's the, why am I here? I'm, I need to recover these four pieces. These who four is artifacts. Zelda? Who is Zelda, right. Who is Zelda? Which, you know, who, who knows if that'll be answered. But like, <laughs> um, how would I defend myself? Okay, I've got, I, I now have a sword. Where is the first item? Okay, now I know where it's at. What, is inside, what is
1: inside right. this pot? What is inside <laughs> this pot? What is inside,
0: what inside this I pot? What happens if I kick this chicken?
2: <laughs> but, but i mean think about it, especially classic video games i mean mm-hmm. it doesn't give you a lot of answers it just it just lets you do stuff and you get to see, you explore and see what happens um and i think a lot of tabletop role-playing games are similar like even if you do what sandbox games where there's no overarching plot it's still a sense of okay let's take a, a, a sci-fi sandbox game you have a spaceship you have you know 15 planets you can go to which planet you go to okay what are we going to find when we get there what's going to mm-hmm. happen when we get there um so you're absolutely right all stories you know, all at, ask and answer a question, and sometimes that's asked and answered by dice. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's asked and answered by players. Sometimes it's asked and answered by game masters. Uh, but So, I mean, yes, we're talking a lot about mysteries at the front, but I feel like mysteries are a good starting point to understand larger plot design, like Dixie's suggesting. Like, also, really, like, go ahead.
1: I just saying, like, even die rolls, like you just said, that's a mystery. Right.
2: Like, and am I going to survive as combat?
1: yeah am I going to hit this guy? am mm-hmm. I going to climb over this wall? Am I going to unlock this door like mm. you don't know you ask the dice and the dice go no <laughs> no you're not you idiot uh, uh, out, all I like
2: about story path specifically is because it does uh, it does offer nuanced answers because in a lot of games dice rolls are yes I have or no I haven't um right. yeah. story path does allow for the options of yes, you've opened the door but the alarm went off <clears throat>
0: Yeah, and that, exactly. And that's, uh, yeah, complications and enhancements mm-hmm. do make, I think, do definitely lend nuance to a game. I was playing one of the uh, latest D&D adventures, uh, published DD adventures, and it came up to one of those many points that a good developer, uh, not to say those books didn't have good developers, but a good developer or a good GM would say, this isn't, this isn't how to write an adventure. And that mm. was if you failed this dice roll, you couldn't proceed. Yeah. And so they, they used to be old, mostly old text-based video games like yeah. that. Of course, there's lots of RPGs like that as well, where the writer is so caught up in the mystery, in the plot, that they don't think of how to make it gameable. And so, obviously, you've got some stories that are fantastic and will proceed either way, and your characters will just be at a disadvantage or may know a little less or may have insulted the wrong person but can still get get ahead in the plot if they fail a dice roll. But there are others that will be the old... uh, You've snuck into the big bad guy's... uh, Luxury study you know that the evidence is in his safe. Mm. it's the only way to put him away for good. Make mm. a larceny plus cunning roll to open the safe it's, I fail make another larceny plus cunning <laughs> roll to open the safe uh, and yeah it won't uh it, obviously it, if this was story path what how that would work is you open the safe but alarms go off or right. um. You You're the or the safe you fa-
1: Booby trapped.
0: Yes, exactly, and half of the evidence gets burnt up, so you get half of the clue or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Or guards burst in, and so you have to try again after the guards are dealt with. And and any mm-hmm. role playing game can follow that. And as a GM, you need to think of these ways of making failure worth something story wise, uh, but also ensuring that failure doesn't just end the story and frustrate the players. Uh, It's something I'm really proud of StoryPath for doing so well that failure only furthers the plot. It just furthers the plot in a direction that the players may not have been anticipating. Uh, I I really like that.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I think um, uh, full disclosure, when we We've pitched this topic, and we've tried several times to get to it, but um, it, it came around from Discord in a couple of places. People asked questions like, mm-hmm. "How do you deal with you know players struggling in a game?" Or you know, "How do you organize plots or whatnot?"
1: Communication,
2: Sorry. right? <laughs> and, and, and communication is a big part of it. Like if you have struggling with players in a game, talking with them is a big thing. Um, uh, but I mean, really, this idea of asking and answering questions is really helpful. I know one thing that I advise to a lot of adventure writers and Dixie will probably recognize a lot of this, as I say it um, each scene, the player character should be able to do something. Uh, uh, Cause if they, if you,
1: mm-hmm.
2: there's so many uh, adventures where the scene ultimately involves the player character gets shuffled on to scene. They watch some NPCs do some stuff and they shuffle right back off uh and it's like why were they even there that there's nothing for a player characters to do
1: yeah it's I, like this is a trap that people including me have fallen into writing adventures where like you write a scene that's literally just players show up info dump players leave like no right. roles no real interaction unless they really really want to mm-hmm. and it's kind of like that's boring and it, it 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 takes a minute to recognize it because like when I was developing the Monarchies of Meow adventure collection, that was one of my my first dev projects, and Eddie had to point it out to me because he mm-hmm. was like you know helping me out. Also, it's his game, um, mm-hmm. but there was one of the adventures where there were a couple of scenes that was just like what what happens here, and it's like okay, so let's let's add in some roles, add in some social stuff, you know, like you can have an an, an interesting scene where the players are doing things that isn't a fight, right. But you need to actually, like, put that in there so that new, you know, GMs know how to run it.
2: Right. And so to reframe it to the stuff we've been talking about during this episode, it would be what is the question the player character is trying to answer and what are ways they can answer that? Um, but the other piece of advice that uh, Joe Carragher gave me early on in my career, which I really, really value to this day, is that in a traditional structure, you have Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. Um, Mm. And the climax to the denouement to the resolution is a big part of non-interactive fiction. How the adventure, how the plot plays out after the key twist occurs is key to non-interactive fiction. That's where you stop in adventure writing. You get the player character to that climax and then let them tell you how the story ends. Exactly. Um, Because, and for linear... Published adventures that can be difficult because you have to give advice on how it can end, um, which can lead towards a kind of railroading answer. Like again, to, but to Matthew's point, like the um, uh, uh, the Cthulhu adventure he mentioned, um, a lot a lot of your players never get to that climax uh, because they're bouncing off of the initial concerns. So you have to kind of move back. It's okay, you have this cursed statue now. What? Yeah, and that, that really should be the end of the written portion of it.
0: Well, I pick on Orient Express a lot. Because it's I, uh, adventure. Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it from the design. Who doesn't want to play a mystery on a train, uh, especially a vintage train? Uh, that's it's. There's a reason Murder on the Orient Express is one of uh, the best Poirot stories. Absolutely, uh, and and yet by its nature, it's railroady. You are on a <laughs> railroad, road. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, I do, I do say it to be glib, but I... That's a true. Yeah, because if you want to get off the train at any point, well, if you want to veer off of the beaten track, I should say, because you're encouraged to get out at certain stops to search for this statue piece, these statue pieces... Uh, but if you decide at any point I'm going to go a little further, or these clues aren't big enough, aren't detailed enough, so I'm going to have to do more research than this game allows. In theory, the train should just fuck off without you because it's not going to wait. It's a it's the Orient Express. Right. <laughs> it's not your private train carriage, and so yeah, uh, it's very much an A to B campaign that has airs of luxury about it because of its setting. It requires a certain buy-in from the players, and we get back to that discussion, that if the players feel like their characters have been thrown for a loop, they don't know what they should be doing at this point, then the players basically need to speak up and say we're going to need a little more direction this is why games like call of cthulhu have things like idea roles that so rarely get used yeah but yeah. should be because if the players well it's why trail of cthulhu and the gumshoe system don't even have idea roles you just get the clues and I, whereas idea roles still leave you the possibility if i really don't know what to do i'm going to make an idea role oh i failed so i still don't know what to do yeah
2: and mm-hmm. actually you bring up a good point i i
0: I have often defended
2: railroady adventures to a certain degree. Um, I, I feel like the early part of the adventure, there's a lot of value in shuffling players off in a specific direction. Uh, a good example um, is the D and D adventure, Descent into Inverness, which I'm playing. Hmm. Um, spoiler you're going to descend into Avernus at some point. Yeah, that, that
1: <laughs> sounds wrong. I don't, I don't think that's what it's about. And
2: I've had people complain about this. It's like, you know, it's like, well, you, know, you just, it kind of railroads roads you into the universe. It's, like, it's in the title. You know, it's like, <laughs> this is what you You opt into a certain amount of work, like playing a Star Trek game, but like, I don't want to actually follow the Federation rules. It's like, you're a Star Trek game. You're going to do certain things are expected and you could go in certain directions.
1: I want to timidly it's, go where a lot of people have been already. <laughs>
2: Right. Well, I just <laughs> hang out in a space station. The shopping mall, basically. d Space Nine, never mind. Um, I mean, that's
1: actually but, kind of the plot of uh, Lower Decks.
2: <laughs> which is which is a great show, but there's a whole other situation. Um, uh, and actually, Lower Decks is a pretty good example of player characters who have no control over what they do. Um, yeah. uh, but I mean, it, that can still be fun. I mean, you know, games like Paranoia can also be really fun too. There's nothing wrong with wide open adventures where the player's Completely drive the plot. That's totally fine. But railroad adventures are not inherently a problem. They're a problem when they're railroaded all the way to the conclusion, to use Matthew's metaphor. Once you get off the train, if you can then solve the problem after you get off the train, that's not really a problem. The train got you to the cool part of the story where you then make Mm -hmm. the big decisions. That's okay,
0: I feel. Well, yeah, and so to recap some of what happened in my latest uh, Horror on the Orient Express campaign, as I say, I have run it a lot. It's probably these... I don't run that many pre-published scenarios, so this one is undoubtedly the one I've run more than any other for any mm. game. And this one, the group got as far as, I think, Yugoslavia, and which is about the halfway mark, just past the halfway mark. And they decided at this point... And they did it perfectly in character, and I didn't feel they were just being belligerent or anything like that. They um, they decided we can't go on with this. We are too too busted up because of all the things we've encountered. Uh, We don't trust the person that hired us anymore. We we don't trust that this statue, when put together, isn't going to summon the thing we've been told it will banish. Mm. And we also know there is a vampire somewhere on this train that wants to claim the statue. So as we are near um, Trieste, I think it is. as we're in Trieste and there is a port to the Adriatic Sea here, I may be getting my geography wrong, but I think that's correct, Let's just get on a boat and sail back to England. And on our way, we are just going to deposit the, the pieces of this statue in various strategic points throughout the Mediterranean. <laughs> it can, it will neither banish this thing. Someone else will be responsible for that, but it will definitely not be used to summon it. Obviously, they weren't thinking of deep ones, but I don't think they're saltwater—well, deep saltwater living creatures. But anyway, that's a that's a subject for another Cthulhu podcast, I'm sure. Right. And so they decided they would flee. The vampire joined the boat with them, uh, uh, unbeknownst to them, pounced on them in the night and asked, you know, (laughs) what did you do with the simulacrum? And they said, we've got rid of it. At which point the vampire was who's supposed to be a pretty feral and sadistic individual as played by me, was (laughs) pretty much forced to say, well, I can't really fault you for that, and there's not Fair really playing. much point to my attacking you because it's not going to get me anything, and so um, they, they they kind of parted ways, and it was it was a one of those um, almost odd horror movies where you would get very sad sorrowful piano music playing over credits rising up over a ship at sea, just making it swear. Yeah, and that's where it ended. And it sounds (laughs) uh, anticlimactic, but for the group afterwards, because I was worried, I thought, has this all been for nothing? They didn't even reach their destination. But for the group, they all said, this was fantastic. This is exactly how they wanted how they ended up wanting it to end. They spoke to each other. They thought, what would our characters do? We've had a fantastic adventure. It's a mystery that is too much for our investigators. And we've gone through these character arcs, all the people we've met, all the horrors we've faced down. Now we're ready to go home, spend some time in a sanitarium maybe, uh, or just get some R&R, a spa somewhere, and then maybe embark on another adventure somewhere else that's slightly less right and yeah for them it wasn't a failure at all and i had built up in my head that if it didn't reach the predestined conclusion that it would somehow be uh, catastrophic but quite the contrary because they had felt empowered to make the decision for themselves and Mm -hmm. and met their character's goals they were happy and i think uh gms can sometimes lose sight of that, that ultimately it's the player's story as well, maybe more so than it is the GM's, Uh, and if the characters really want something, and well, the players really want to achieve something, such as the aspirations on our story path character sheets, then let them, you know, make them uh, overcome some obstacles, but if they do it, that's what they've expressed they desire, so go for it. And uh, with any luck, they should be happy with it. I have a similar anecdote, but also ties into communication. Um,
2: one of the first games I worked on was a game called Midway City, which is sadly out of France. Uh, but the the premise is that it is a space station far in the future um, where the person who owns it uh, has completely gone around the bends. Um, because they don't believe in flat Earth. And they have decided that everything should be reduced down to 1920s level technology. So it's the Roaring Twenties, but sci-fi, but in space. It's a very bizarre game. Um, and so the playtest group I put together for the game, uh, they were a small mob group, mob crew. They were like tiny little mob crew. Uh, they were, like, in the, of the five families in the they were number five kind of thing. And the original plan was to do a short run of adventures, so they can build their way up through the city. Uh, And through a combination of hilariously bad decisions and bad dice rolls, that did not come to be. Uh, After about four sessions, we realized that they were probably going to get murdered. And so at the end of the session before the last game, I was like, so here's what I'm seeing things. like We can go one of two ways. Um, Everything that's going on, you're probably going to get murdered. But if you really do (laughs) want to have... Uh, a, a satisfying conclusion, you know, let's talk about what you might want to see out of the game. And I can kind of adjust things. Cause I, I want to respect decisions you made, but also I can nudge things in a certain direction, like the police come in and raid or whatever. There's some of the ways we could play this. I want to see what you want. And then let me come up with a solution. And the unanimously said, no, we would love to just be gunned down. We, we think that would be great. And it's okay, cool. Um, and so the last session was just, you know, the rise and fall of this group. Um and it wasn't. I tried to make it so like it was a big. You know, they 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 had this. They're down to just their bar, and they had set up traps, and they're going to shoot their way out. And so the characters were definitely trying to survive this. The players recognized that they were not going to. Yeah. And so we were able to lean into that moment because again, the question was, will you survive this? The answer is no. And we recognized that that was the question asked and answered. But we wanted to play through how we got to that answer.
1: That's actually mm-hmm. part um, of why I like Ten Candles is because at the very beginning, yeah. it's like. The answer to the question of if you're going to survive is no. Right. Like, by the end of this game, you will all be dead. Let's see how that happens.
2: Right. And that can be fun. Call of Cthulhu is another great game of that. You're probably going to end up with, you know, uh, uh, not in the great mental space and also maybe dead. Um, But how do you go that route? So you could play fatalistic games. No problem like this. You know, or... Flip, flip it around, you can play games that are much more about very competent people like the story path games. Um, well, maybe not that They
0: came from, but other story path games what? where you play very competent people. <laughs> well, well, um, you know, uh, I agree. Uh, they came from cat murder Lake, I think would fulfill that same 10 candles criteria. I can, right. Well You're going to get killed by those. the slasher.
2: Yeah. Quite
0: or, probably. Uh, at least one, one of you might survive maybe two. Um, uh, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of games like that alien, of course, uh, by free league and uh gosh dead of night is quite like that as well um dread that and i think it's interesting Mm. because we i mentioned aspirations on the story path sheets and it's interesting how recently i guess relatively speaking the idea of players expressing their objective before the end of the campaign uh mm-hmm. has come into being i guess a part of role playing currency because if you recall from the misty uh 90s back when uh vampire the masquerade revised was being played at the end of the decade the one of the most popular flaws you would see people pick almost every group had someone pick this dark fate yeah mm-hmm. and Yes, you could argue it's because a lot of people saw those seven points and went, yes, yes, yes. Oh, yes. But but there were an awful lot of people who loved the idea of having some control that their characters would die, which meant I would get to play out a satisfying narrative arc. Uh, and if I remember
2: know, Dark Fate also, you decide like how you die too, right?
0: You can do, you know, it, and that's the thing. A good storyteller, good player that should collaborate, communicate, speak to each other. Well, how do you see this Dark Fate playing out? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, And some people will say, well, I'd like it to be a mystery. And that's fine as well. Mm-hmm. But some people want to engineer that Dark Fate. And now, whether it's through horror games or adventure games, you can engineer the kinds of things you want to see in a game. I think that collaborative process is as satisfying for for GMs as sitting at your desk, probably more satisfying as sitting at your desk and typing out in long form the structure of your scenario. Better to speak to the players and find out the kinds of things they want to encounter, and you don't have to put it in exactly as they've expressed it. Uh, you know, Subvert it a little, change it a little. If they want to come up against a dragon, how are they going to feel if they come against, come up against a three-headed dragon? Or an undead dragon; it's still a dragon, you know. Mm-hmm. It's uh, play with their expectations, but not in a not in a cruel way. Make it so that they are looking forward to something, and then you still surprise them in a way that makes them happy. Well, that's right.
1: that's also like I know people want to get real edgy about like the checklists and consent forms and stuff. But I know that what most of my friends, that especially who run horror games, say that they get from those is they don't get a list of no's. They get a list of yes, yeses. please. Yeah. And so, like, okay, these people aren't cool with, like, certain kinds of body horror, but they're totally into, like, zombies. I don't know. making making things up. Um, so, like, if, like, all these things are green, then you can go really hard on those topics and then, like, pepper in some yellow occasionally for, like, some spice, you know? Like... Like, oh, this is something that's kind of a like icky thing for you. I'm just going to throw it in there just to freak you out a little bit. But what that means is that the tension at your table is never shattered by you actually bothering somebody. Like, I love horror stuff. And there have been times when I'm watching a horror thing and something takes me out of it. Because I'm like, oh, I didn't like that. Like, as right. a person, I didn't like that. Even the, the rest of the gross, weird stuff, I'm like, ah, that's fun, you know. Um, and you don't want to do that at your table. You want everybody to be bought in the whole time. Um, and I think this is like, like I said, it's especially important for horror games, but it's, it's important for any game. If like somebody's really, really phobic about rats, I have a friend who, like, I, I will never post a picture of a rat to my Facebook because I have a friend who is terrified of them. Like, that mm-hmm. does not like seeing them. Um, I think they're adorable. That's okay. We have different opinions. Right. But like, if you have someone who's phobic about rats, and you decide that like, you're going to have giant rats in your game, and you don't know about their phobia you could really hurt somebody or at least really bother them and make them maybe not want to play with you anymore. Whereas if you just know about that ahead of time, you're like, Oh, okay. I will turn the rats into giant spiders. Still creepy, you know?
2: But, and like to flip it around, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, like I said, even for action adventure games, cause I've also done a checklist in a few games. Um, and it's interesting The past couple of modern day games I've run. I always get some form of, I do not want to experience racism, but I would love to punch racists.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's 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 all like full disclosure, whenever I put together a, a form for, for myself, that's always a thing where I'm like, I do not want sexism, racism, homophobia, whatever directed at me or my friends. Mm-hmm. But if somebody espouses a racist view, I want to be able to punch them. That's fine.
2: right. And again, that 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 gives you an in. It's like, okay, cool. Well, now I've already got some potential antagonist ideas. That might be compelling for the group if everyone else is okay with that.
1: I mean, that's literally why Balthazar is in Chicago by Night. Yeah.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. And we like talked he about is, that.
1: He is there to be punched. Please
0: yeah. punch him. Now, I
2: remember Matthew and I talked about that when Balthazar it's like, how do we include this guy?
0: Yeah, I, when we were making up the spreadsheet of uh, SPCs we wanted to see in Chicago by Night, and I'd put mm-hmm. Balthazar on there. and Yeah, we talked about it. Yeah, I was
1: initially arguing against him. And then like after I thought about it, I was like, no, put him in there. And then people will have a really good person they can hit without remorse.
0: And uh, and on the subject of, I guess, GM advice regarding characters like Balthazar, uh, there will be plenty of players you encounter who do not want to encounter uh, racism and bigotry in their games. And that's absolutely fine, obviously. Um, One thing... I suggest if you, if they also say, but I want a racist to punch, you know, I want, I don't mind having bigots as villains, but I don't want to encounter bigotry. Mm -hmm. That isn't, um, what would it be, tautology? Um, Because you can ask that same person who says, I don't want to experience bigotry at the table. You can say, do you mind if I describe something as the vampire utters a slur under his breath? Right Or words to that effect. people uh, wouldn't be doing it under our... his breath because he's a vampire, he doesn't breathe, but nevertheless.
1: Yeah, that's like how our storyteller did when we had Balthazar, where it was mm. like, you know, he says something incredibly offensive about so-and-so.
0: Exactly. Now, some people don't even want that, because the inference of bigotry is, is enough to upset them, and fair mm, enough, sure, again. Uh, mm. But you can... Oftentimes, find a middle ground if they want characters like that, if they basically want Nazis to smack in an Indiana Jones way, uh, but they don't want to see, I guess, evidence of Nazism. Uh, again, open discussion, collaborate, communicate, talk about what it is, how it is you want these people portrayed. If you do just want them to be sort of comic book, um, I guess, jackbooted idiots who. Just speak with accents and fire guns while with wild inaccuracy. That's fine. They're still Nazis, um, but there's also various levels of um, that bigotry that you can put into play if people want to see it, and if you feel the need to portray it in your game.
2: Right. So, I mean, I, I think again, it goes back to what kind of, like, like you said, what kind of questions do players want to answer? What kinds of things do they want to experience? Being able to say, here are my lines and veils, or here are things I don't want to see, by definition means, okay, everything else is okay. And it helps narrow the field of what could be cool and interesting and compelling to players. So asking people what you do want to see, what could be fun, and then, okay, what kind of questions do you want to answer in this game? What kind of things do you want to experience? And then putting those questions into the game, that's a good way of kind of just building up a story.
0: Well, I'm sure we have a lot more GM workshop advice because this has been very rambly, but very fun as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, conspiracy theories and GM advice. How about that as a topic?
2: Oh, we didn't talk about Conspiracy X. Oh, man, I oh, well.
0: We didn't speak about <laughs> Connex. What's your what's the best thing about Connex, Eddie?
2: Uh, well, one thing I liked about First Edition was it was the only game, as far as it was, the only game ever, uh, whoever used senior cards as the way of using your powers in a game yeah. which are if for those of you who don't know, Xeno cards are the cards with like the circle and the triangle, and whatnot, white cards with black symbols on them that you look at, and you're the person supposed to guess what it is by the reading your mind, and you actually use those as a way to use your psychic powers in the game. Mm. It didn't quite work mechanically, but it was a neat <laughs> concept, a way of using a prop to reflect the weirdness of a distinct mechanic system. And unfortunately, they got rid of it in second edition, so I was like, boo, I don't care anymore."
0: Oh well, um, yeah, they were. They presented the psychics, I think, in a separate supplement in second ed. And then, along with most Eden Studios games, it just kind of ended. Yeah. In and, and, and we can ha- launch our own conspiracy theories as to why. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Uh, yeah, um, but. I think you can still buy... I, I know you can still buy All Flesh Must Be Eaten by Eden Studios. I don't know if yes. you can still buy Connex. Uh, you can buy a second I'm, mission. I don't think you can find first issue. Okay, yeah. Um, but we should also be advertising some of our games. If you want to play uh, any games involving <laughs> mysteries, uh, I'll, I'll go, down, go round the table. Dixie, if you wanted to point players towards a good mystery game that mm. we are selling at Onyx Path, what would be your first choice?
1: So this is actually what, kind of a weird question, because I think, as we were just talking about, all games are mystery games. Yeah. So I would ask the people what genre of mystery they want.
0: Murder like, mystery, want... says one of your players. I want a murder mystery.
1: Do you want a modern day murder mystery, or do you want a historical murder mystery?
0: Hmm, says the player. I think <laughs> I will go for a historical murder mystery.
1: Okay, do you want fantasy elements or not?
0: Oh, now you're pushing me. Like, the do you want supernatural
1: is... stuff, or do you not really?
0: You're giving me too much choice, GM. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm angry. Why, why, why is it that Onyx Path offers so many fantastic games at affordable prices? <laughs> uh, the, the, <laughs> the player says, I would rather go for a supernatural kind of mystery, not so hot on the fantasy.
1: Okay, in that case, we are probably going to be playing uh, maybe Mummy the Curse, too. I hear um, the developer
0: is fantastic, and the book is a <laughs> <laughs> Uh
1: I could also see an argument for doing a bit of a historical scion setting, or for dialing up the supernatural and adventure.
0: I like it. Thank you very much. That was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And we also
1: have some really good Hunter Dark Eras.
0: Oh, so. Dark Eras! Tell me, don't tell me more.
1: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're very familiar with Dark Eras, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, it was so dark. I never wish to return to them. Uh, <laughs> no, Dark Errors Two is fantastic. But really enjoyed uh, co-developing that, and yeah, do check it out, listeners. And Eddie, I'm gonna give a more
2: specific answer. Uh, uh Masks and Mythos, I think would be really great. Um, in particular, mm-hmm. um, uh, there is some more specific advice on running investigations because it's trying to evoke that Call of Cthulhu feel without actually being called of Futhulu, So obviously, you're much more you know, potentially have much more power than a typical Call of Cthulhu adventure, but still, it's, it's ultimately about solving occult mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would definitely add. The other one I would suggest is um, Mage the Awakening, because Mage the Awakening 2nd Edition specifically was definitely geared more towards people who uncover occult mysteries. Uh, mages are much right. more occult detectives than any other version of mage. Uh, so it's another really good example of why does the world work this way? Let's look under this rock and see if we can find out.
1: Yeah. And of course, for modern day stuff, you have... Uh, Trinity Core, obviously. Mm-hmm. If you want to go a little darker with it, we have the forthcoming assassins. Right. Um, and then if you want to do a little bit more fantasy modern day, we have Scion, obviously. And uh,
2: Maybe in the near future, there might be a little something for people if they want to do kind of, I don't know, control style modern day little, investigations.
1: Little X-Files? Little X-Files? Maybe. 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 that's something. <laughs> maybe we can tease that a little.
2: tease, tease. Tease.
0: Mm, well, with all that teasing going on, uh,
1: <laughs>
0: Dixie, if people want to find you online, where would they go?
1: You can find you pretty much everywhere as Dixie Cyanide on social media or just, you know, hang out in the Onyx Pathcast channel on the OPP Discord or elsewhere on the Discord because I'm pretty much just there, just floating around.
0: And if they want to share their favorite conspiracy theories with you, Eddie, where would they go?
2: Uh, alt.conspiracy, which is apparently actually still around, I found out. <laughs> As we were talking,
0: oh my god! Uh, yeah, because where um, we find your old
2: posts? Uh, maybe actually. <laughs> um, I was I was it was nineties, so I, I, I give you that caveat right now. Um, I was young and stupid as opposed to now, where I'm older and slightly less stupid. Uh, but otherwise, you can find uh, me you get news about what I'm doing at Pugsteady on Twitter, and you can find me at my website pugsteady.com. But usually, if you want to ask me a question, just come to the Onyx Path Discord
0: and uh, we can chat there. And if you want to speak to me, you can find me on MatthewDawkins.com, on Twitter at DawkinsMP, and likewise on the Onyx Path Discord. Do check out our website, theonyxpath.com, every Monday night or Tuesday morning to see what our current release slate is looking like. And with that said, many worlds, one pathcast.